Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, Welcome to the Realmcast. I am the Mortal Kombat fan, Tim. And with me, as always, is my co-host, the lore master, Yanni. Welcome, Yanni. Thanks, fan, Tim. With us today, we have writer, producer, and probably most importantly to our listeners, the director for Threshold Entertainment's unreleased third Mortal Kombat film, Christopher Mink Morrison. Welcome, Mink. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, glad to have you on. Thanks for joining. So before we start talking about the movie, how has Mortal Kombat kind of affected you outside of your work for the uh, with Threshold? I... MK was, you know, I'm a game person. I love video games. Video games is a big part of my just work in general, both just for recreation as well as influence. And the first game in the arcades obviously was a something we could do with our friends in school. And then when it came to the Genesis, it was like, wow, we can have blood in our living room. <laughs> um, so, and the mythology of it, you know, I, I think I'd seen a lot of the movies that, that the game makers used in reference when they made oh, yeah. the game. And so I think if you're watching the movies and then you see this game, you're like, wait a minute, there's, there's, there's a similarity here, whether it's Enter the Dragon or Big Trouble in Little China or Bloodsport or so to be able to go to the arcade and then eventually at home on the Genesis with your brothers and sisters and, and play those characters was a big deal. So obviously it becomes sort of part of your daily routine, you know, come home from school and beat each other up <laughs> in Mortal Kombat. Good old days. I think that's something a lot of, a lot of fans forget nowadays is kind of that, you know, rich movie uh, influence in the games itself. And and those movies are classic in their own right. But Mortal Kombat has kind of grown in such a way that it, it the references are lost it, it, to some people. Yeah, I can see that. And the games today are, you know, so far beyond what they were conceived of in the 90s. So it's understandable. I mean, is the Star Wars universe, is the Mandalorian recognizable from um, mm. the the first one? No. Right. So far apart. They're so far apart unless you really are a student of the of the story. It's just up to the individual. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a very good thing. Oh, it's cool. So who is your favorite Mortal Kombat character? I'm a traditionalist. I have to say Sub-Zero. He was the guy that character I was played in the games. I, I thought there was something about pulling liquid out of the air and freezing your enemy. That was great. That's um, <laughs> yeah, I would definitely say Sub-Zero. That was the character I usually went to and played. And then, of course, you know, then they had the derivations of it, whether it was Reptile or <laughs> Scorpion. Yeah. Or one. Like, oh, it's just the same guy, but a different color. <laughs> um, so, but I was kind of like, no, and Blue is my favorite color. So Fair enough. <laughs> it was kind of, kind, of, kind of an easy, it's an easy go-to. Yeah. Uh, so how about then your, possibly your favorite game? Mortal Kombat. Other than the first one, um, I would have to say the remake of Mortal Kombat that they did for PlayStation 3. Yeah. You know, because I what they did, you know, Mortal Kombat versus DC Universe was such a leap ahead, you know. Mm. And then for them to bring the game itself back, you know, just as like, hey, here's Mortal Kombat the way we wanted to do it in 1991 on this hardware. 
It was kind of mm-hmm. mind blowing. Yeah. And they, they kind of integrated with Mortal Kombat 9, the same kind of movesets that mm-hmm. you used to do when mm-hmm. you're a kid growing up. Mm-hmm. I think that's why the game became so popular mm-hmm. with everybody. And there was something so, I mean, again, I'm a PlayStation guy, so, so please keep the comments to a minimum. <laughs> um, you know, you know, don't hit the like button if you're not, but I'm a PlayStation guy and I know there are other <laughs> platforms out there, but to me, the PlayStation 3 was so, was so like, are you kidding me? I can sit in my living room and watch movies and play games and stream and everything. You know, and the, the ability to chat and they, they finally got the, they got the multiplayer right where you could like mm-hmm. you just drop in the lobbies and like, so that part of it was so, to me, was so much part of the experience. Oh yeah. So let's kind of go back before we start diving into devastation too much. Let's talk about your career a little bit. I mean, you kind of started off, didn't you, as a production assistant for Walt Disney Studios? Is that was that your big break into the yeah yeah I industry? Got, I got I got lucky and um I got lucky and I got a production assistant job and I got my I got my uh Disney polo shirt and I got to walk around <laughs> a lot and like you know drop things off and tell people mm-hmm. where not to go and don't eat the don't eat the salad. That was one of my favorite jobs, like the salad crew. <laughs> don't eat the salad. Try telling grown adults when you're 20 years old, don't eat the salad. Um, <laughs> and I got my, I had gone to photography school. So my, my real passion was photography and um, I just kind of worked my way up. So I started with a broom. And then the next thing I know, like within a year, I was kind of on sets, learning how to use the equipment and working my way. And then, you know, kind of took the act on the road and did some movies and kind of work my way up through that. It was all just, you know, luck, hard work, show up, grind, do what you're told, be polite and enjoy it. That's cool. And just, and just, you know, just kept going. You actually ended up self-financing your own movie uh, bus in 97. So, I mean, going from production assistance to self-financing your own movie kind of shows that work ethic to be able to do. Well, we sold our car to pay for it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then we had to take the bus everywhere, but the movie was about a bus. So it was kind of, um, did, we, did you buy the bus with the car money? Did we No, we, we convinced the city of Santa Monica to let us make a movie on the bus, which was, Oh, okay. Gotcha. So, so, it was, so it was, it was uh, donations. I don't want to say bribery. That may not be the right word. <laughs> right. Donations. It seems like it was like a donation made to let us make a movie on on a bus. So yeah, but the idea came. We had access to the equipment, so that was kind of you know the nice thing was when you work on movie sets, you're around creative mm-hmm. people all the time, and there's sort of a kind of a kindred spirit. So if you're passionate about something and and uh, you, you you're respectful and you you want to learn, you want to do, you can use those things to kind of help what you're doing. That's really cool. You ended up winning a film festival off that movie, didn't you? Oh yeah. We won like, we won it. We won at Houston Fest, which I, I think we got, we may have gotten a mini keg or something for it, but we did, <laughs> we did win an award and we went, we did the festival circuits and uh, it, it was fun. It was fun. Definitely worth selling the car then. <laughs> <laughs> you, you then went on to, well, Around the same time, I suppose, you were doing some music videos. You've working with people such as Madonna, Michael Jackson, Snoop Dogg. And yeah, that was a left turn. Uh, there was a friend of mine who we'd worked together on uh, Starship Troopers. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he was a, a, a producer and he was working a lot in uh, commercials and music videos. And, you know, like everything else, right? The thing about the entertainment business is you're as good as your next job, right? So you can be working on a terrific picture, but at some point it will come to an end. And he had encouraged me, hey, you should really look at the 
commercials and the music video world, there's some really interesting people here. And he'd been working with Fincher and uh, Spike Jones and, and Mark Romanek. And I, I'm a kind of a goob when it comes to watching other directors direct. I think it's just like the most amazing way to learn. And so he was nice enough to say, hey, we're doing this project. Come check it out and uh, kind of w- work my way through it. And a job opportunity arose and I put my name in the hat and I guess the rest is history. I didn't know you worked on Starship Troopers. What did you do for them? We were doing all, we did almost a year and a half of uh, photography for oh, uh, that's awesome. miniatures, blowing stuff up, bugs, bits and pieces, first unit, second unit, third unit, fourth <laughs> unit, I don't know, whatever the unit was, right? Uh-huh. And Paul Verhoeven almost ran me over in the in his car. So that was that was like my highlight. Of <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was tired. He was coming home. I was in the wrong place. That's It's such a small world because, you know, Casper Van Dien, who became famous from that movie, ended up also working on Mortal Kombat later on. Oh, wow. Um, That's cool. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see kind of how all these different people that we've spoken to have kind of touch bases in, in some point or another um, have, you know, it's like six degrees of separation. It's really true. It's really, really true. <laughs> and the artist community, even on a global scale, is much smaller than people think. It really That's is. Really cool. You know, I think there's a perception, obviously now with the world being different, there is more opportunity, but the community itself is smaller than you. But as far as your writing credits go, I mean, you, you have written several different things. Yeah, um, I've written a lot. Yeah, like uh, you wrote Shinjuku, which, I mean, it did really well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you do have writing credits under your belt. I mean, you've kind of touched everything, it seems like, in your, your early career. Yeah, I would direct a writer is sort of what I've always saw myself as. And mm-hmm. to make a living in uh, the entertainment business, you have to be, um, you have to adapt. You have to be creative. Yeah. And you have to compromise, as, as David Lynch says. You know, compromise <laughs> is not a bad thing. Compromise is growth. So, so, yes, it would be ideal to just do exactly what I want to do, but you have to, you've got to find a way. Before we jump full on into Devastation, uh, I'm just curious, because mm-hmm. you were involved with uh, Ninja Gaiden? Correct. And I don't think we ever saw anything from that. No, you didn't, because Tecmo couldn't. So... And again, this is another like, okay. So at the end of my involvement in Mortal Kombat, Jeremy Bolt, who's Paul Anderson's producing partner, reached out and said, hey, Mink, we should talk. So we went to lunch and he's like, well, Paul and I are developing and they had done, of course, they'd done the Resident Evil movies and they had done, they were, they were in the process, I think, of working on Death Race and a bunch of other things, really all really cool stuff. They go, look, we've got, we have the rights to Ninja Gaiden. The window's closing. Would you be interested in trying to come up with a take on it or as be, and that's what we did. And I ended up working on that with them for a while. And then for whatever reasons, it didn't happen. Mostly because I'm really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) I have ideas that cost a lot of money Uh and producers look at me like, okay, (laughs) <laughs> can, we, can we bring this down like yeah i don't think so you mean like like your vision for how the yeah. movie's gonna end yeah. up yeah yeah i've had i've had a lot of those meetings like man this is a big idea right yep that's usually when they give me a bottle of water and ask me if my parking has been valid <laughs> <laughs> is that usually uh, or is that uh does that have anything to do with why you started uh Twice Story Studios. Yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, there was an in, there was a change in the industry going mm-hmm. on. You know, the the business 
you know, there's the business and then there's the creative and they're married, but there was Mm -hmm. a change in the business. And, um, I kind of wanted a little bit of a different challenge, you know, and I'd been involved in some development of some other pictures, Fast and the Furious 3 and, Mm. and then, uh, another surfing movie at Warner brothers and, and, and the process is exciting and unique and whatever, but I was like, well, maybe I should, you know, look at this through a different prism. So, um, Twistery was a wonderful opportunity to kind of do some, to, to do it, to do it a little differently. So I spent a number of years, I put the studio together and we grew and did a bunch of really cool stuff. That's cool. So I guess let's rewind it then and let's go back to devastation. Sure. Um, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, uh, as far as, you know, you were a director for it, but how did you get involved into this Mortal Kombat world? Uh, at the time, it was, was mid 2000. It was like 2006, 2007. My involvement with it was from about 2007 to middle to late 2008. So, mm. and I don't know what it, I have no idea what preceded it. And I have no idea what preceded it afterwards, other than what I read in the, in the, in the various industry periodicals. Mm-hmm. So I was working on another project at the time and, uh, and my agents said, we, you know, they, they would send me scripts to look at and they sent me the script and I landed and I was like, well, this is cool. I was like, wow, Mortal Kombat, another one. You know, I remember, I remember, wow, that was yeah. one, seven, eight years ago, but that's just, this is interesting. And so I read it and then I said, yeah, it's great. And they said, well, the producer, Larry Kazanoff, he'd mm-hmm. like to have lunch with you. So I was like, okay, great. I was like, cool. So I did what I normally do. I made some notes and put some ideas on a piece of paper and we went and he set up this lovely lunch at this really cool restaurant in Santa Monica. And, you know, I went there with my notebook and just, you know, ready for him to come. And he came in on a razor scooter, right? <laughs> like he came in on a scooter. I was like, well, this is different. This is cool. And he had his baseball hat on. He always has a baseball hat on. And, uh, we had a great lunch and beers and burgers and we talked about, you know, he was going to make another Mortal Kombat and I'd read the script and the script was good. Um, and we just kind of clicked, I think on the mm-hmm. vision of what Mortal Kombat, I guess it would have been three, but I wasn't, to me, it wasn't Mortal Kombat three. To me, it was much more along the lines of what's become the current norm. It was just mm-hmm. another Mortal Kombat movie. Mm-hmm. This was not, this, this wasn't Nightmare Part Three or. Freddy part three or Halloween part three. This was just another Mortal Kombat movie. And he asked me That's what I would do in certain areas on certain parts of the script. And I think he was very curious about some of the loony ideas I had. <laughs> and um, we just started working on it. And it was, then it was about probably 14, 18 months, maybe, you know, going mm-hmm. through the process of what it takes to develop a film like this um, and get it to fruition. Mm-hmm. How, how far into that did you get? We were, we got just before pre-production. So I would wow, say we okay. went through all the processes and, you know, keeping in mind that this film was going to be different from the predecessors in the sense that it was much more visual effects intensive. And, um, it was bigger in scope, much bigger in scope, two, three times bigger in scope. Wow. Um, so we got wow. all the way to like pre-production, which would be the part where you'd be making offers to actors, you know? So we got there, we got to like looking at locations, not going, but looking at locations talking to mm-hmm. talking to crew we were talking to crew about availabilities and stuff so we were on the edge but it never went to what would be considered pre-production 
And this all happened around 2000, you said. So a few years after Annihilation. 2007, six, six, seven, eight. It was all within about a 14 month window. Oh, yeah. Wow. So with Larry Kasanoff on, I mean, and you sort of mentioned this a bit earlier, uh, you were looking at, or he was looking, I suppose, at possibly having a bit of a conquest connection. I don't know if it had a conquest connection, you know. My familiarity with the with the stories at that point was the two movies, and I don't recall Conquest. I I I'd seen some of it. It wasn't readily available. Was on a lot of streaming going on at this point, you know. Yeah. Um. So I'd seen the two movies. Uh, the script. I was looking at it from like, hey, you're a director. We give you a script. What are you going to do with it? I know as a mm-hmm. filmmaker, my job is to bring the audience into what I have. My job is not to tell them what they're missing. So mm. I was working with the story they gave me, which was great. Larry and Josh Wexler, and uh, I think Catherine Derrick. Catherine, Catherine Derrick. Uh, there's a writer that, writer that Larry works with. They had put it together. And, you know, Larry was no, there was no nonsense and it was understood. Larry was the Kevin Feige of the Mortal Kombat universe. He was the keeper of who does what, when and where and how and the good ideas. And Josh Wexler, who was, who was his executive producer, Josh also too was this lovely guy who just lived and breathed Mortal Kombat. And he had really, really good ideas. So, and they were working with Ed Boone. Ed was aware of what they were doing and they were going backwards and forwards and you know, so the story was really a standalone st- Mortal Kombat story that did have loop lines, most likely, if you really wanted to get down into the weeds mm-hmm. of the first film. So, uh, I mean, that being said, did you involve any of the, the cast from the first movies or was this kind of like... They were around, you know, we, okay. and we were making decisions about what we wanted to do. You know, this was going to be a, this was going to be, this is like Batman Begins of, for Mortal Kombat. Mm, gotcha. So you've seen That's interesting. You've seen all of the Tim Burton Batmans. You've seen the mm-hmm. 1960s Batman. You've seen the cartoons. What is this Batman going to be? So my approach was really, you know, okay, I, Guillermo del Toro has just done Hellboy. Okay, uh, Batman Begins is like a huge influence. Like the, especially the training for Batman up in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Like okay, that's what Mortal Kombat could be. Yeah, that's um, cool. Uh, I was looking at. Stuff from the first Pirates of the Caribbean, as far as the use of practical and visual effects and ideas. Yeah. Uh, X-Men 2 was a huge, like the, especially like the Lady Deathstrike fighting stuff between mm-hmm. her, her and her and, uh, and Wolverine. House of Flying Daggers, Hero. Like these, this is what we were talking about. So this was the, it was an open, fluid conversation. And, and what a kind of a golden age to, to produce a Mortal Kombat movie. Like, as you said, all these influencers coming out at the same time, mm-hmm. like you, that could have been something amazing. Just I, oh, I'd be directing Mandalorian right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I'm just saying, if we had done this movie, you guys would be like, that's a cool movie. This was <laughs> great. It was great. And the people involved were, were great. It just didn't happen. That's okay. It's okay. So it's like it, the one that, it's like that beautiful, that beautiful moment in your love life that got away from you, but you can still <laughs> love it, right? You can yeah, still love right. it. So put your arms around it and go, God, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> so what ended up happening to the movie? Did Annihilation's underperformance have anything to do with the the project getting scrapped? Or no, was it just I don't think I had anything to do with it. It had that okay. nothing had to do with it. It was a financing thing. It was purely financing. Gotcha. Oh. The film was independently financed. And so if any of your listeners care to understand, but and it's incredibly boring, it's like, you know, like <laughs> paying your cable bill. Um, independent financing is based on foreign sales. And mm. the sales are done 
prior to the movie being made. And then Mm -hmm. that money is banked. And then a financier puts a loan forward to cover those pre-sales, right? And that's Mm -hmm. how it's done. Those business transactions in the independent film world in 2006, 2007, in the 20 million, $30 million range, $40 $40 million, <laughs> those happen every day. Those movies were being made left and right. But we're t- we, uh, we, we had a budget of $75 million. Whoa. Oh, wow. You know, Batman was over 100. Hellboy was, what, 40 or 50. Um, yeah. I think X-Men 2 was 75. You know, so we didn't have any studio money. Mm. And Larry was doing this the way Lucas did it. He would raise the money, he would make the movie, and then the studio would act as the distributor. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's, a, that's an ambitious project. It's like building a $75 million building. You know, mm-hmm. and you've got to sell the condos <laughs> before you can break the car. So, so that was the journey we were on, you know, <laughs> and I was up for it. And he, we did the best we could. And we had some great meetings. We had some great meetings. About, I remember we had one meeting, which, which again was in another restaurant. This was a time the listeners need to know we ate a lot. <laughs> we went to restaurants <laughs> and ate and talked. So I don't think they do that anymore. So you missed out. <laughs> another great <laughs> shrimp dinner. And all these wonderful producers that make the, they make the Rambo movies and they make some, some of the dudes from, I think from the Transformers movies, we were all at this wonderful dinner and we were talking and everybody was figuring out how we could make this movie. And there was a cocktail napkin going around the table Mm -hmm. and each one would write how much money that they think they could get. And then the napkin would pass like you were playing like the game at the campfire. Yeah. And no matter how many times the napkin went around, they could never get all the money. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's kind of a, that's probably an odd metaphor for the audience to understand, but that's where it was. Like, yeah. Because we had to make the movie, right? And then mm-hmm. it would go in the theaters and then it would go to DVD. So we didn't have the benefit of the streaming world now where the audience is, is ready to see it the moment you finish it. This was kind of common pr- practices for Threshold Entertainment at that time too, wasn't it? The independent financing, I assume so. Mm-hmm. I wasn't involved in anything but this. So, you know, I think the independent okay. financing world was, was as far as film was concerned, was a real part of filmmaking. And, and it, you know, whether it was, whether it was Quentin Tarantino or whether it was uh, Linkletter or, or Soderbergh, you know, everybody making a movie by doing foreign sales was a very common practice. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear you saying, like, this is, Pretty much the first time I've heard it actually confirmed as to what happened with the movie, because there's so many rumors. And as we said, misinformation, it was because of Annihilation's failure or really? because of rights to the film. It was, I've literally never read it anywhere, but basically that it's what you said. That's financing. I was just going to say as well, you mentioned uh, Tarantino. And uh, one thing that didn't come up earlier was that you were on the director roster for a band apart films. Oh yeah. That was a, that was a dream come true. So with Mortal Kombat, was there a full script written at this point or was it still? Oh yeah, there's a full script. And I have it. Oh, do you? <laughs> you can't have it. <laughs> I'm not being responsible for leaking this script. Right. Hear me right. I did not release it. If it gets out, I had nothing to do with it. To be fair, I think it's way past NDA time. And if they cut this part out, I'll remember this. <laughs> yeah, there's a great script. It's a, it's a great script. There were many writers that were involved in the screenplay before I got mm. it. I mean, a lot. I think the script I got was probably the, maybe was the fourth or fifth version. Okay. And we were changing it as we were producing it too. Wow. Uh, Even the version I I have a printed copy of, that's not, that wasn't the final when I left. And I'm sure it changed after I left. 
Because Russell probably changed it too. Russell probably took what I did and changed, you know, changed it to his. Just, game. just curious, because you've mentioned obviously you're. you're you, I mean, we're not going to ask you to leak the script. Don't worry about this. But you've mentioned that you're mm-hmm. a, a worried about that. What is the deal with sort of like how long must you keep a script private if it's bit late? It's not so much about keeping it private. To me, it's uh, it to me it's an artistic ah, respect. Gotcha. Fair enough. Totally fair. You know, I, I I came with the club that I was in was. Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, David Fincher, like those are the people that I watch do this. Like you, you don't talk about Fight Club. Yeah, fair. Mm-hmm. No, totally like, and I and I know that the fans need this, but when it comes to written material, this is an un it's an unproduced draft of a script that is really good, and it most likely will get used again. So, out of respect to all the people that were involved in it, it would be very inappropriate for me to to share it in a in a non-professional way. No, I totally understand. You know totally what I mean? respect that. No, I just wanted to confirm. That's it. That's it. You know, if Larry, if Larry, Larry could tomorrow, Larry could take all the scripts they ever written and he could put them in a bound book and sell it. Mm. Maybe, yeah, he yeah. maybe he would do it, you know, but I, I, a lot of times I, you know, cause reference rise, you're like, okay, I want to read a certain screenplay. And sometimes you can get them. Sometimes you can't. And, you know, I remember when screenplays, from films got released on the internet and for various reasons. And for me as a filmmaker, I'm like, well, I get the fortunate opportunity to be, to be entrusted by my peers to look at things and tell me that my professional opinion and out of the code of creative process, I don't share my opinions except with the people that ask me, ask me to share them. And when, if stuff is released, if Larry had made this movie in another fashion, I'd be happy to talk about it. Mm. But he never did. It's unreleased. Yeah. So and that doesn't mean that there I'm sure too. there are dozens of actors that have it. So it doesn't mean there isn't a copy out there and it doesn't mean it won't surface. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that it's, as you said, it's also a draft. So, I mean, there's like it, it's not even close to what could have been as a finished product. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's and there was a budget attached to it, which was, you know, as I'd mentioned 75 mm-hmm. and there was a process in motion of doing it, you know, building the visual effects pipeline was really was going to be, was the most daunting task. Hmm. As you, as you can imagine, we were doing pretty much, we were doing everything they're doing in the Marvel universe now, then. Yeah. That's crazy. Wire work, green screen removal, environments, practical effects, you know, CG miniatures. We were doing all of it, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you have to build a pipeline in order to produce that efficiently and properly. And at 75 million, you really needed a hundred, right? So you have to be far more diligent in how you get things done. Can you tell us a little bit more? I mean, what exactly is pre-visualization? Pre-visualization is the process of building the film prior to you shooting. So prior to the explosion of computer technology being used within filmmaking, what you, what you would do as a filmmaker is you would write a script and then typically you would hire a storyboard artist who would sit with the director and you would draw, just like a comic book, little panels of how the movie's going to look. So if it was a car scene, the director would say, you see the wheel and then you see the car door and then the bad guy leans out the window and shoots his gun and then the storyboard artist, like a comic book artist would draw three panels mm-hmm. and those panels then would be given to all the departments to figure out what they needed to do. So the automobile department would go, Oh, we need a car. And the gun department would go, Oh, this is the gun we need. And the action department would go, Oh, he leans out the window. So we're going to need a safety cable. Well, 
all that changed with the with the revolution of the computer technology being ex, you know exploding into the space. So pre-visualization, and I was at the time we were doing the movie, I was I was working with the guys that had done the work on the Matrix, most of the Matrix, the first one, the second one. Um, they were they were in beginning stages of working on uh, uh, Iron Man with John Favreau, and they'd done a lot of other things. So my thought was, and we were with Larry, it was like, let's use pre-visualization to make this Mortal Kombat, first and foremost, business-wise, business sense. We don't shoot a frame of film until we know exactly what we're doing. Second of all, we can get the visual acuity right. And third of all, we can design the scope. So you, what you would do is you would take sequences from the script and build them in 3D software with, with the talent, the, the focal lengths, the cameras, the lighting, and you would build that world. And then you could literally block out just like storyboards, but it's all moving in real time. You drop it in an Avid and you can cut it up. You can put in music and effects, everything you want to do. You can build those scenes. Now at the time, 2007, this was, this was a very elaborative process that typically was only involved at the highest level of filmmaking. So Batman Begins would have had previs and Pirates of the Caribbean would have had previs. But a $70 million movie wouldn't have that much previs because it was expensive. It was time consuming. I think the industry considered it to be a luxury. Hmm. But both Larry and I realized, okay, we're going to build a visual effects pipeline for this movie. And what that means is we're going to build the process from beginning to end of how these visual effects shots are going to be done in this film which is a mixture of, from a visual effects standpoint, miniatures. We were using matte paintings. We were using CG environments. Uh, we were using some rotoscope. We were doing sky replacement. We were doing visual enhancement on some of the characters, like changing eye color and doing all these things. So pretty much every frame in this movie was going to have a visual effect in it. Mm-hmm. We were wow. going to build a studio for the duration of the movie that was going to do it. But we'd hire the best people we could get. We'd put a team together and we'd not only would we film the movie, we would do all the visual effects. And what you do in previs is you do it all before you shoot a single frame of film. And so the pre-visualization process is what I was involved with at Threshold. So Larry, Josh Wexler, myself, a couple of other teams, he had some visual effects teams in his shop because he was working on some stuff for Marvel, uh, outside of the Mortal Kombat universe. So we were building that team and we did tests. We shot tests. I don't know where they went. They built CG environments. We were partners with Panavision. Uh, Larry was also partners with IBM, I think at the time. So he had a lot of processing computer power coming from IBM because there was kind of wars going on in the visual effects world of which computers to use. So, but we were using Panavision time. And I think the Genesis system was the camera system. I may be wrong. I can hear the keyboards clacking. You know, no, Genesis was an Airflex product. Um, no, I think it was Genesis. And so we were figuring out how are we going to make this movie? And we were doing that from a very like, okay, we're not going to call digital domain to make this movie. We're not going to call industrial light and magic to do this movie because our budget doesn't fit within the context of how they work, but Mm -hmm. we can employ their philosophies, their workflows and their design processes into this. So this was a soup to nuts you know, you know, super robot we were building at the same time we were doing all the normal film processes, like who's going to be in it? Who's going to do the music? You know, I think I mentioned to you in the music, like my vision for the music was to get Pharrell, mm-hmm. who I was a huge fan of, to bring all of his artists in and have do 
music that was like the the battles from Mortal Kombat would be like performers of that time battling each other in the music. Cool. So, I mean, this this whole pipeline that you're building out, I mean, you were basically building out your own studio like Industrial Light and Magic, but before, I mean, like back then with, it sounds like uh, contract workers. Correct. They were, they were there. We were, the film would have reached a point where other studios would have needed to be involved, but the head uh-huh. of the snake was going to be our studio. That's amazing. Could wow, that have yeah. grown into its own thing? After probably. I think yeah. it probably would have because we were pushing the boundaries in certain areas, you know, and we were using a, min- a, a mixture of miniature work, traditional blue screen and green screen, and then pushing the technology at the time. Mm-hmm. But there was a there was a 100% understanding that there probably wasn't going to be a frame in this film that didn't have some sort of digital modification to it. And Larry was shooting the first Mortal Kombat film digitally, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you, there's no more film mm-hmm. and that's a whole nother, you know, making those, making those films on film gave those films a certain look. And we now we're recreating that look using digital technology, which, and all of this now, this is all standard fare. You know, everything I'm talking about, you can do on your phone. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when you put ears on your head and like send a message to your mom, like cat ears, uh, you know, like that would have cost us a lot of money in 2007. Oh yeah, <laughs> gosh, that's amazing. I think that was a really cool description, actually, or explanation yeah, rather. Yeah, that's cool to hear. So, should we jump into the story then? I guess. Yeah. Oh, it's your guys' podcast. I'm good. Whatever. You need. <laughs> so you said obviously it was a lot later than Annihilation, and it was released in in 1997, and then you were talking about this in 2006, 2007 or so. Uh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Now, if it was going to have been its own story, would that have been a, like a complete reboot of everything? Because you did also mention possibly the original cast. I think Larry had the foresight to understand that seek the, 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 the conception of what a sequel was, was changing for the audience. So mm-hmm. for m- most of entertainment's existence, especially the 80s and the 90s sequels were thought of as hypothetically a lesser version of the first one right mm-hmm. right yeah. they thought of it as a financial understanding that the first one was popular so let's do another one and in some Only cases trilogies were good. in some cases right they made dozens of films i think mm-hmm. larry had the foresight to understand that mortal kombat was different much as kevin feige Feige did with the Marvel Universe where he decided single-handedly, wait a minute, Captain America 1 and Captain America 2 are not Captain America 1 and 2. They're just Captain America with a connected universal story. Mm -hmm. So here we were in 2007, much past Annihilation. I don't know what the budget was. I don't know where they filmed. I don't know what they... I really had anything to do with that. But Larry had this script that was going to need between 75 and $80 million. That's a lot of money. And it's a big step up financially from the first two pictures. Yeah. Big step up. A lot of visual effects. We were going to have to build a pipeline. We were, I had friends of mine from, from, from the Lucas world and we were going through the process of building a previs pipeline and how we were going to do it and the design and using Cirque du Soleil performers and how much set do we have to build and all this stuff. So we're making a $75 million movie. You don't really want to think of the film at that point as the third installation of an ongoing story. It's a James Bond movie. 
Mm, there was the mm-hmm. first James Bond, the second James Bond, and now we had the third James. And I think Larry had the foresight for that. And he knew that I kind of got that. And so that was our approach in every category of this film, whether it was cast, music, design, length, whatever we were doing. And the script reflected that. There was, there's action sequences in the script that are so good. And I can't talk about them because I would be very surprised if they don't use them in the upcoming films. Wow. Oh, wow. They're great. They're not good. They're great. They're as good. The, the, the action scenes that him and Josh did are as good as the stuff in the Marvel Universe. I'm telling you. And they deserve to be on screen. So the title that we have seen, which I mean, at this point, I can't believe anything that's out there anymore. <laughs> <But> <laughs> the title that we've seen has been Mortal Kombat Devastation. Was that a working title or was that? No, kind it of, wasn't. The title okay. was Crusade. Oh, oh, wow. Really? So this comes full circle. <laughs> not with a C, nothing to do with <laughs> nothing to do with that part of history. It was with a K. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, that's interesting because Mortal Kombat Conquest was released as Crusade in some part of the world, oh, I uh, like in, in Europe. So that's that's super interesting that that was the title that you guys had for it. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really going to be once the dust settled, I think it would have just been Mortal Kombat. I don't I yeah. think they would have dropped the monikers. I think they would have said, wow, this is like, this is like Batman Begins. Like this is a new Batman. So let's just call it Batman Begins. Let's call it Mortal Kombat Begins. I think that's where we would have ended up. Mm-hmm. I mean, you said the script was written. So I'm assuming that you already had characters chosen for this movie. Yeah, there's char- the characters in the script are the principles that are in the games that there's there's. Josh and Larry had added some some supplemental characters, I think, that really helped connect the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think those are necessary in these kind of films, you know? Yeah. You've got to have, you, you, the, the, you've got to have, you've got to have those characters that kind of are the glue that bind it together that may not be principles, but they help, they help move it along. Mm-hmm. That's part of the beauty of Mortal Kombat really with this su- sort of supporting characters. Everybody really is supporting in their own way and adding to the plot. Uh-huh. Absolutely. You know, there, uh, I mean, we're all assuming that they're kind of several different scripts that, made its way around before it got to this phase. Um, and there were rumors that Quan Chi was going to be the main villain in this, uh, in this story. Was that the script that you ended up working on or was that something that might've been earlier on? I'd like to take my lawyer on this question. <laughs> uh, gotcha. <laughs> I cannot either confirm nor deny that, sir. Uh, gotcha. the story was a unique story that Larry had written. Um, and as I said previously, I'll be very surprised if they don't revisit it. So, mm-hmm. Out of, out of that kind of artistic respect for other directors and filmmakers, especially Simon, who did a wonderful job of the recent picture, I will keep my mouth shut in regards to these things because <laughs> the script is really good. And I hope that uh, Warners takes a look at it because I think there's a lot of it that could make whatever they're doing now great. That's really cool to hear. So, I mean, because we could kind of see... Mortal Kombat Conquest, in a way, uh, from some of this earlier script, if it, if it leaks over into the new stuff. Mm-hmm. That's I cool. really do. And I think, obviously, you know, the, the response to the film and how well it's doing, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's that kind of, you know, the universal approach now where you want to develop television, you want to develop animation, you want to develop, you know, other forms of, of, of media around these great ideas that should happen and will happen. And Larry's got a treasure trove of it. He's got a lot of material, you know, and I was probably the least talented of the people that were really involved in it. I mean, he had a lot of really heavy hitters that came in and around it. And I feel fortunate that I got my swing at it, you know? Mm-hmm. 
We, uh, we've established at this point that uh, the rumors themselves are definitely what seems to be baseless rumors. Um, but one of the rumors was that it was in and out of developmental hell for, well, even 10 years later. Were there actual talks constantly to bring the movie back up at all? Or did it just end and stop there? I, you know, I, I, my involvement in it ended, you know, um, and, and it ended principally because I think for me, the writing on the wall was that the, the financing side of it, the raising the money of it, you know, Larry had to, he, I think the fans need to know these movies are like an NBA franchise, right? So last night, Los Angeles got to witness the Lakers go out in the first round. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> they are, they are, the Lakers are something that's very important to Los Angeles. Even if you don't like them, they're important to Los Angeles. They went out in the first round. All the talk on radio today is how can we make them better for next year so they don't go out in the first round? It's mm-hmm. a business. We love the players that are on the Lakers now, but some of them may have to go so we can bring in new players. It's a business. Larry had the business of trying to make an $80 million movie, modifying the version that we had put together, which to this day, I will go into any room at any studio and say this movie would kill just the way we had it with the ideas we had that standing my passion for it and Larry's passion for it, he still had the responsibility of trying to make an $80 million movie. And so if he's got to yeah. go a different direction, whether that's change the script or change me or, you know, or mix it up or do whatever he has to do, that's what he has to do. And so I respect that it's a business and I'm in it, you know, I'm a player, I get opportunities. So you win some, you lose some. So, and I didn't see this as a loss. It just was, we kind of went different directions. I went on to do other things and then he journeyed on with it. And I know I, I heard that Russell McKay was involved after me and he's a brilliant director. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, like, you know, to bring someone from that kind of pedigree into this world makes sense. But beyond that, I don't know. And then, you know, I just knew what happened after that, where it went on to, you know, Warner brothers and then they did the web series and the other things, but I've kept an eye on it just as a fan. So is there anything about the story that you can reveal at this point or is that all, you know, no, I can, you ask the questions. You're the reporter. (laughs) I'll just look at my lawyer across the table here and he'll nod yes or no. All right. (laughs) So what was the story going to be following a, a new set of warriors no, was it was it? the principal. It was a, it was a sub zero centric okay. script. Ooh, oh, sub zero centric. Okay, was it going to be going down the route of mythologies at all? Uh, it had some. It had some of the, the 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 mythology of where he was and the relationship to everybody. Mm-hmm. It had some, and it definitely it definitely brought um, in a film way. You know, much as like the original trilogy of Star Wars brought some of the rules in. I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of films that have rules in the sense that the, the, the story has some rules and then those rules can be applied sort of universally where the audience can kind of go, oh, okay, I know the rules. Let's go. Uh, the film was bringing rules into it that maybe the audience that didn't play the games didn't understand. So hmm. those rules were kind of the core basis of it. Like what was the tournament? Why is mm-hmm. it happening? Who are the That's principal cool. people? And we were doing it in a new scoped way. So if you look at Batman Begins, right, we're assuming that everybody that went to Batman Begins knows who Batman is, right? Mm -hmm. He's a guy, he's got this incredible suit. His parents were killed by a burglar and now he saves the world. But Christopher Nolan said, 
I'm going to, I'm going to take you on that trip in a new way. And I'm going to show you what it, how he did his training and how he became who he was and why he does what he does. That was what our overall approach was. Um, would it be safe to say that this was almost a prequel movie kind of exploring Sub-Zero's past with Mortal Kombat? No. Okay. No, not safe <laughs> at all. It's not accurate at all. Gotcha. <laughs> it was Batman Begins. I, I, I can't, it was, it, as much as Batman Begins is a new telling of who Batman is, this was Mortal Kombat. You've never seen it like this. We need to explain it to a new global audience. Because I think, right, you guys know this, the previous film was 12 years before I was having these meetings. Yeah. You know, I've sat in meetings and people don't know what Back to the Future is. <laughs> so that's, you know, I shake my head, but I'm like, oh, I have to educate this executive on what Back to the Future is. And not in a, <laughs> not in a derogatory way, just like, oh, there's this wonderful film where this guy travels back in time. And he, you know, that's what we had to do as the filmmakers. Mortal Kombat, this version of the film had to, just like when you change a James Bond, right? When you go from Connery to, to Roger Moore, or you go from Roger Moore to Timothy Dalton, you've got to kind of bring everybody up to speed of where you've been. And that's mm -hmm. what Josh and Larry did with the script. And I, they did a great job. I'm, it was a lot of fun. The script was fun. It was PG-13, the PG-13. Mm -hmm. So I know people really love the nature of where Mortal Kombat's gone. And I do too. But this was a PG-13, you know, family action martial arts picture i have to say i'm i am even more heartbroken now that it didn't actually come to fruition because if, so if you're talking <laughs> oh especially just now after what you said because i have Can always wanted the merchandising oh my god <laughs> i might i would actually have all the podcast equipment i want no <laughs> But a mythology-centered, or at least inspired script sounds exactly like what uh, I've always felt the series needed. But would that have also been any sort of uh, influence for the choice of characters, such as possibly Fujin or my favorites, uh, like Serena and such? Or were, were no... They were using... I, I think if you, if you think about it in terms of the, like the Avengers, right? Mm -hmm. The purists know mm -hmm. that the Avengers that are in the film aren't even really the Avengers that are together in the books, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're, the, they're the Avengers that are the right Avengers to be together in order to make the Avengers relevant to the world. And I think mm -hmm. that's kind of the genius of Larry's adoration of the Mortal Kombat universe and why he got involved in it 15 years before I met him. He knew the characters that the audience wanted to see. And mm -hmm. so those were the principal characters that are in it. And, hmm. and those characters drew from, there is some stuff. I mean, the film was written between, um, Armageddon and, uh, what's the one before devastation? Is that right? Deception? Am I doing that deception right? Deception and Armageddon. No, deception. Yeah. Armageddon and De deception. Sorry. I, I apologize. Deception, not devastation. I'm, Cause you can say <laughs> deception and Armageddon. So there was some, there was some mythology that Ed had relayed to, to, Josh and Larry that he would like included in this. So there was some inklings of it, but really keep in mind, we were doing Batman Begins. We were going to reintroduce Mortal Kombat to the world mm -hmm. for $75 million. Hmm. You know, would it have used the original cast members like Robin show as Liu Kang or was this? It, it was, Batman Begins? Okay. So my take on it was, was, and we, I went, we met with all the original cast cause they're also friends with Larry. Larry does, yeah. I think people don't know that Larry's an avid martial arts enthusiast as well as he practices himself. He's constantly doing exhibitions and stuff. He has Black Belt TV. He has a he had a small dojo in his cool house in Santa Monica Canyon and 
he'd invite us over there and we'd have dinner and watch these incredible martial artists from around the world. So Larry's community of people, including all the original cast from the film, from Christopher and, and, and Linda and everybody, they're all friends. So as we were making the film, we were all talking. I mm -hmm. was the vision that I was working with with Larry was they would be in the film, but be in the film as a homage to the original film. So That's they were cool. not, we were not principally thinking of saying they were going to be the leads again, but I was mm -hmm. going to include them in it. Like, like Ghostbuster cameos or something. It's similar, but do it in a way where it was like, they, they got, they got to be, you know, part of it, you know, cause we were, I mm -hmm. was, you know, I wanted Chow Young fat as Raiden, you know, like we were, cool. this was a, this was a big introduction. This was, you know, Michael Jai White as Jax and Kelly Hu and Takeshi Kaneshiro as Sub-Zero because of House of Flying Daggers. Like, mm -hmm. The cast was going to be Donnie Yen, maybe a Scorpion. Oh, that sounds amazing. Like, <laughs> you know, Ken Lowe, I'd done some work with Ken Lowe and Jackie and his team, and they were interested in being involved. You know, so it, the, the scope of it was big, you know? And I think that's important for the viewers to understand mm -hmm. that it was not a continuation of the previous two films. No more than, you know, no more than they would have put George Clooney in Batman Begins, right? Right. And that's not in any way a step aside from where it was. It wasn't a third film as far as what we were developing. That makes more sense too now with, you know, with this budget, because that's a lot of high profile actors, especially at this time. Yeah. I mean, I was, we, we met with, I want Ray Park, Ray Park wanted to do Johnny Cage. I was like, how cool is that? You know, it's like, oh okay, that's a different idea, but let's, you know, we were thinking of, um, you know, Jessica Alba for Sonia. I mean, this was like, this was, I was talking to Pharrell about doing the music. Like it was, this was a big movie. Wow. Ambitious, <laughs> you know, and if you think of that window, like Hellboy, you know, if you think of Hellboy, X-Men 2, mm -hmm. um, Batman Begins, the hero, hero's a little earlier and your audience may not know it, but for me, the visual acuity of hero was so cool, but maybe Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, again, over a hundred million dollars, but the set pieces and the methodology of how you do the work, where we were trying to go with it. And it was one of those things, like it's a boulder, right? You're making a movie. If you can get it rolling downhill and get going fast enough, you know, or that Katamari game where it just picks everybody up. Mm -hmm. Um, and pretty soon you're where you need to be. We just couldn't get the boulder to start <laughs> Like that cartoon with the roadrunner. I had the stick under it and it wouldn't move. <laughs> yeah. So did you have some uh, locations in mind? I mean, Japan, would that have been part of it? Because of the whole Mortal Kombat stuff or, or China or anything like that? Uh, I think we were, principally, it would have been Thailand and Prague, probably. Oh, great. Yeah. And then or or Hawaii and Prague. Mm -hmm. I think we were leaning towards Prague because of the, the capability of the crews. And again, I'd worked in Thailand, too. The capability of the crews is the shooting crews I'm talking about for the audience mm -hmm. who doesn't understand. The, and the art department crews. Um, a lot of people, you know, by 2007, a lot of great movies had come out of Thailand. So the infrastructure for filmmaking there was exceptional. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had gone down there to make a very modest film. And I thought I was on the streets of New York. That's how good the crews were. The equipment, <laughs> yeah. the abilities, the art departments down in Thailand are like, they can make anything. And, yeah. then, and of course, because they'd had movies there. They'd had, they'd, have these, they'd had these big blockbusters come through there and the training is good and the crews were good. So we wanted to find the right place to shoot it. Including the fast Mortal Kombat. Because of how ambitious it was. And, and we needed, you need good, you need good technicians. So uh, in terms of the direction for the actual 
well, the script, the story, and everything. What, did it take much of a cue from how uh, the games were? Now, you, obviously, you mentioned a mythology sort of inspiration, but was there that sort of focus for these similar sort of atmosphere, or were you just going for your own sort of thing? Oh, yes. It had, it had and Ed was involved in it. It had a lot of... Uh, one of my favorite parts of filmmaking is the details. Details, mm-hmm. details, details. So when you got down to the environments that, that the fights were taking place in, the reasons for the fights taking place in, the, mm-hmm. the, the visual callbacks to those iconic visual moments inside the games, the script was riddled with them. And, and that was important to me. I was like, people who play the games need to watch it and go, oh man, that's from that game. Oh, that's from this game. But that's the details. It isn't in this actual storytelling in that sense. That's really cool. You being a director and you know having experienced the games from the beginning, you're able to kind of sprinkle that in there and put that in there where, you know, a lot of directors who might not have had any experience playing the game at all wouldn't even think to do something like that. And, and a lot of credit goes to Josh Wexler, you know, Josh, oh, really? Josh, Josh had the games. Larry had a Mortal Kombat three cabinet in the lobby of his office. Yeah. Like they, they lived and breathed it, you know, they understood it. You know, and I would bring up things. I'd be like, hey, why don't we do this? And Josh would be like, well, that guy's cool, but he's not as cool as this guy. And then when you get to this level, he, you can pretty much easily beat him. So we should use this guy. And I was like, all right, well, that makes sense. So there were a lot of those conversations. So it was it was mm-hmm. it was wonderful in that sort of collaborative process. That's cool. So you mentioned it was PG-13. How come you went for the PG-13 instead of the say the R rated? Is it? Because of the time? It's all about the money. All about the Benjamin. <laughs> Batman begins as PG-13. It was going to have some fatality, a fatality at the end, kind of like in the first picture. Um, but that was the point. We, 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 you want a movie that everybody can go to. There's no, you mm-hmm. know, um, let's transport everybody back to 2007. There's no, you make a movie it goes in the theater for a certain period of time. Let's say it goes in the theater for six, eight weeks, and then it goes to DVD at your local record store. Okay, let's let's flash forward to 2021. There's no record stores. What the hell is a DVD? <laughs> so that's where we were. So if the mm-hmm. film was PG-13, and I do believe that New Line or Paramount, who depending on who was going to distribute it, um, they wanted a PG-13 film. And that's a business decision. And you 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 go where the business is going to take you. Had had the industry said a hard R, like a hard R would be great on this and we can, we can ratchet it up and we can put it out at Halloween and whatever, absolutely we would have done it. But that was not what the industry was saying. They were like, oh, you've got Pirates of the Caribbean meets Hellboy? Okay. We'll put that out. We'll spend a hundred million dollars on advertising, but they didn't want to spend a hundred million dollars on a hard R at the time. Yeah. I mean, even, even today, like the new movie, it did great. And, but there's still a whole demographic that misses out on it because of the fact that it's, it is R rated movie. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right about that. (laughs) The, uh, so the title crusades, I mean, were we actually seeing a crusade of these characters like going out on an adventure or was it still tournament based? You're, very clever one, Mr. Jones. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you could say that. I could, I, I, I could, you, you trick me. That's good. All right. All right. This podcast. <laughs> um, uh, uh, get my lawyer in here. This is not what I told this. Thing. Um, yeah, you could say that. Yeah. The characters were on a crusade. I think that's, hmm. that may help your audience better understand. Generally what we seem to see with Mortal Kombat uh, content, at least in terms of the movies and such, which going to be, 
it was going to be located between Earthrealm and Outworld. Were you planning on using any of the other realms? Uh, my lawyer says no. <laughs> uh, come on, let me. Just this one. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah, he says no. Um, sorry. I wish I could help you. Uh, again, that's a script question like your last one. Um, because of it was a reimagining, because of, I mentioned to you guys, $70 million. Mm-hmm. You heard the names of the actors that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. We want Batman Begins. Yes. The answer is anything in the Mortal Kombat universe was on the table if we wanted to include it. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's actually in this script, I will let my lawyer tell me to be quiet. Okay. Uh, then to ask a less specific question in that case, um, <laughs> you mentioned that it was around the time of Deception and Armageddon. Could we assume that based mm-hmm. on the title and and that time that it was sort of inspired by possibly the conquest modes of those two games in some way? Mm, no, I, no, I think I think conquest was a separate thing that Midway was doing at the time, you know, and because mm-hmm. they were, were those two games had come out and then there was Shallon Monks, I mm-hmm. think. Is that another yep. one that was out? We had that as reference and they were working on the Mortal Kombat versus DC and we weren't allowed to see it because it was so top secret um, and rightfully so, you know, mm-hmm. that game stuff is worth more money than these movies. Um, so I don't, can't speak for Josh, who was kind of spearheading where we were going as far as before I got to the screenplay. Um, I can't speak for Josh, but I think, you know, Ed might've said, Hey, we're doing this really cool stuff. We did get concept art and stuff from some of the games sent over that they were working on and ideas, characters, weapons, and we were kind of given free reign to kind of do what we wanted to do with it. But there wasn't, you know, I know where you guys want are going with it. There isn't, this screenplay did not have a specific storyline that was, that was definitively connected to any of the games individually. Hmm. Uh, as far as a universe, absolutely. You know, it was drawing from multiple stuff. But as far as a specific game, like you could say, oh, this script mirrored um, Armageddon or it mirrored, uh, Mortal Kombat three. It didn't, it really didn't. And, and as I mentioned before, there were characters in the screenplay that had considerable roles that aren't even in the Mortal Kombat universe, according to the games. Mm-hmm. So, oh, okay. So you would have had, a, uh, or possibly had certain original characters to the movie then. Mm-hmm. And that was necessary for these kind of films. I mean, if you think of Pirates of the Caribbean as an example, Jack Sparrow had to be created to connect the Pirates of the Caribbean story to the audience. So we knew that, okay, it's a Sub-Zero centric script. Sub-Zero has got to be on screen for, let's say, on and off for of 90 minutes. He's on and off for 60 minutes. I mean, he was kind of the main dude. He can't just walk around by himself. So who's he interacting with? Who, what is the actual story that's being told? So there were all the traditional characters that the audiences loved and they were in it in a very meaningful way. And then there were other interstitial characters that were, that were created by Josh and Larry in the context, just like, cause they were in charge of the universe in order to make the screenplay great. And I give them credit for it because it works, you know, and those characters probably from this film, had we made this totally awesome movie, those characters probably would have ended up in the game because Ed would have been like, those guys are cool. Let's put them in the game. Yeah. I mean, you keep saying Ed had quite a big hand in it. Was he basically kind of like the overseer? He's George Lucas of the universe. So Uh they run stuff by him. Yeah, I gotcha. You know, he's busy. He's making games. He doesn't want to make, you know, I, I think, I think people... The making of a film like this, especially the latest one, is mm-hmm. thousands of hours and thousands of technicians. 
Ed's not a film director. Ed is, you know, top 10 video game designer, creator in the history of video games, right? But he's not <laughs> a movie director and he's not, he's, he's George Lucas in that sense that he's the keeper of like, yes, this is appropriate for Mortal Kombat. And I think out of respect to Mortal Kombat and the understanding of that he's the keeper of that, Larry and Josh would always talk to him about it. And that's from, I'm like, I'm third party to this. So Josh would come and go, hey, I spoke to Ed and he thinks this is a good idea. And I was like, okay, great. With your history with movies, would this have been your first martial art movie directing? I yeah, Second, you know. I mean, I, I'd done the film with Steven. Um, oh, yes. So I guess it would be my second. But I don't know if that film was really an action martial arts movie. It had martial arts in it because of Steven, but, but it, I don't know if you consider it a martial arts film. But that film exposed me to the martial arts community. You know, I got welcomed into kind of Jackie Chan's fight group and and shown how it how those films get made and how it works. So that opened up a lot of opportunities for me to kind of understand, like, you know, I wanted Jet Li as Shang Tsung. Mm -hmm. That could have happened. Um, and he'd never done a really done a real bad guy at this point. So the that world kind of opened up to me. And it's a very beautiful, uh, hardworking, shared community. And I know you guys have had people from the fight community on your on your podcast. And these people are the salt of the earth, you know, mm -hmm. and they're and they and they care about what they do and they want to do stuff that's great. So this film was like a godsend. You know, I'd experienced it in kind of a minimal way doing Steven's movie. Because it was more action, I guess, than martial arts. And now here was this opportunity to do a fantasy martial arts movie. Yeah. The bulk of the work is martial arts. Like, that's pretty cool. And that movie was uh, Into the Sun with yeah. Steven Seagal? Correct. Now, were you planning on using any of the, any of the influences from Big Trouble in Little China, Bloodsport, and Enter the Dragon? Oh, in of your... course. Of course. <laughs> that's cool. Of course. I always say if somebody were to do that and kind of draw inspiration from those of course. Classic hits. Like it'd be a perfect Mortal Kombat movie. <laughs> of course. Enter Dragon is like the blueprint. Like, you know. Cool. Um, and those films. And also the script has a sense of humor. Uh, there's a sense of humor. All the characters in the script kind of wink at the audience every once in a while. Like and breaking the fourth wall wink? From like, yeah, from a from well, it, it's it's it, there's a sense of humor that's in the first film, right? Whether it's, you know, mm -hmm. Johnny saying that's those are five hundred dollar glasses or 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 the exchange he has with um, um, Blue Kang on the on the thing. There's a sense of humor coming from, and that's Larry's influence from all of his time with James Cameron. You know, because this movie was going to be Terminator Two for Larry. You know, he yeah. worked on Terminator Two. That was the first picture, I believe. Again, Larry, I hope I'm getting this right. No, you're getting it wrong. <laughs> uh, he doesn't sound. His voice is not that high. Um, <laughs> I, that was just for effect, Larry, I swear. Please don't fire me, even though I'm not working for you anymore. Um, he would work on Terminator 2, and I think he saw the jump that James took from Terminator 1 to Terminator 2. And again, for your audience, Terminator 2 is a movie that's available on <laughs> stream services that was made in 19, the early 1990s. It's great. Go watch it. You might like it. I think this it. is a great time um, to tell you that Terminator actually was a guest character in the latest Mortal Kombat game. Ah, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, the, uh, so I think we saw this as Terminator 2. So it's just as Terminator 2 took leaps and bounds in all areas, right? The scope, the scale, the stunts, the... The writing, that's what we were, that's what we were trying to do. And Larry saw that. And so the sense of humor and style that was in this film mixed with the writing, which had these incredible fight scenes that just had to be prevised and shot properly with those influences that I've mentioned, Hero, Pirates of the Caribbean, Batman Begins, Hellboy, 
And we had access to those technicians. That's another thing that makes me go, man, I wish we'd pulled this one off, right? We had all the same technicians and we had the time, you know, a lot of times these movies, you don't have the time. We had the time to do the previs and figure it out and how are we going to shoot it and how, what's practical and what's visual and what's, what's CG, what's not, what's wire work, what's real. But Larry knew that. So this was going to be T2. And that's that my involvement was like, Hey man, we're making T2. And I knew that, you know, I knew it. It was, it was a daunting task to make T2 for $75 million when it needed to be $150. Mm-hmm. Oh, we were going to do it. We'll get it done. Oh, sounds amazing. But, I, but what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't make it for 25 There was kind of a point in me like, hey, it's not fair to, to, to pull this all back just to make a movie. So at that point, you know, I was like, I was really, my head, my heart, my artistic process was wrapped around, let's do this for $75. let us Let's hellboy this to death and kill it. Let's 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 make T two. You've said a few times that Sub Zero was supposed to be the the main character of this. Now mm-hmm. in Mortal Kombat, we do actually have two Sub Zeros. We have Bihan, the original Sub Zero, who later becomes mm-hmm. Duke Saibo, and then Kwai Liang, his younger brother. Would you be able to confirm which one this would have revolved around? It was the younger brother. Okay, that's cool. Okay. You can hear the keyboards rattling. Oh. All right, don't say a bad word. You can edit that out. Run backwards. So did probably, you... Larry will probably get mad about that. All right, lawyer, write that down. He may call about that. How about your costumes and, and things like that? Did you have um, uh, game uh, accurate costumes in development for this movie, or were you? We wanted to. Again, it was taking the leaf out of X Men Two. You know, mm-hmm. a leaf out of out of Pirates. You know, like Black Leather and like. <laughs> find that norm that oh. represents the film that supports both the universe itself, mm-hmm. right? The universe itself. Like what is Sub-Zero's uniform supposed to be or outfit or costume? I hopefully I'm using the right word. And then give, give that to the film. Make, the, mm-hmm. make, this, make this the, you know, Christian Bale's costume is, is significant to his, to Nolan's films. Whereas, mm-hmm. whereas, Burton has his own and that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to, you, you would, and you would use, I was at the time I was really fascinated by Cirque du Soleil and I was fascinated principally about the pure, brilliant execution of their stage shows, particularly the ones that are on the road. The ones that are in fixed locations are incredible, but the ones that are on the road that are able to go and create these illusions using light, fabric, design, camera angle, that's what I was fascinated with. How could you bring the Mortal Kombat universe to life in a way that it had never been done? Done Because I wanted to take the George Lucas approach, which was the closer the camera gets, there's more detail. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see latex and bits of foam and like, can we touch that up? I don't want to yeah. see that. I want to see more and more detail of the Mortal Kombat universe. So besides the detail on it, I mean, were you planning on kind of basing this movie more in reality the way that Nolan did with Batman Begins? Or... Were you still keeping a lot of that fantasy aspects to it? It was split between the two. Okay, you know, great. If you're if you're yeah. if you're walking down, if you're in Times Square and Sub Zero shows up, mm-hmm. let's let's approach it like, well, well, what would it be if Doctor Strange was in Times Square? Uh, mm-hmm. Right. So the approach was more of a Marvel approach, and Spider Man Two was a huge influence for me. You know, that was a way to show fantasy and reality kind of together. Yeah. You know, and once the script gets going, it gets going. You know, and I and you you picked up on it by being a great Mortal Kombat detective, the crusade. Like once it gets going, it gets going. So I have to ask, we've 
sort uh-huh. of seen in Annihilation, we had the the Outworld warriors with dragon markings, and then the latest movie, they had the dragon markings. Were you doing something similar with this, or were there no markings in any way? I, it was, I can't recall, you know, and I can't speak to, I can't speak to what was done in the latest film. Um, and I wasn't, I really kind of, Annihilation, I was respectful of it, but I wasn't doing that, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, you know, kind of takes me back to what I said before about it being a franchise. Like there's the, you know, I was being asked to coach the Lakers, right? And there was the Magic Johnson era. It was the Kobe era. And now I had this new team in 2007. What am I going to do? And they were giving me a plan. They were giving me a screenplay that was like, hey, we, we want to take what we've done and, and re-envision it. And I don't even think that's a fair world word but we want to, we want to Batman begins. Mm -hmm. So the fair thing you do when you're in a fortunate position, like I was is embrace the rules and go with it. That keep that being in mind, I'm still Paul Anderson's original film is like, you know, it's, it's in my Rolodex of like go-to adaptations of games to film, which is a very difficult thing to do. You know, it's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, I, games are, games are pixels, you know, if I dropped the if I dropped the Mona Lisa on your guys' doorstep and said make a movie out of it, <laughs> what? Okay, yeah, and it's got to be ninety minutes and it's got to be good. <laughs> you know how many different ways could you guys go? Right? Well, is it I about mean, we Mona Lisa? Is it about Brothers. her? Well, maybe she's not in it. Maybe it's a what's it could be like Ocean's Eleven. You know, like what? Oh well, you know, maybe it's a romantic comedy. So for what for what Paul and Larry did in the first first go around, you know, they set the bar. Mm-hmm. They set the bar for everything going forward. Like this is how you adapt pixels into something that people can experience of in a movie theater in the dark for 90 minutes. I mean, before that we had the Mario Brothers movie. And <laughs> <laughs> we kind of saw just how Correct. much artistic liberty people mm-hmm. can take with this sort of thing. Correct. <laughs> Correct. So with Sub-Zero leading the charge and it being well, a crusade of sorts, one mm-hmm. would assume that you were bringing in the clans and it was possibly a sort of Lin Kuei mission or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, there was, there was a, of course, the, the mythology is, the mythology at this point, at this time in, you know, the Mortal Kombat game history, the mythology is pretty deep at this point. So Josh was, Josh was spearheading that effort as far as like what material he felt was appropriate to be included. And then they had three or four writers that were staff writers on and off with Threshold. And this is all from my point of view, right? So if the information that I'm transmitting is inaccurate, <laughs> uh, please keep in mind, I'm, I'm speaking to this from my point of view. You know, you know, I came every other day, whatever, to the office. We worked together. We did things. We, you know, and so the screen, the, the versions of the script would come through and they would make changes and tweak certain things. Um, and it was based on Josh's interaction with both Larry and Larry seeing what he would like to see in conjunction with what Ed was doing with the games at the time. Because that was important. Hmm. Obviously, you, you want to make sure that if there's anything wonderful in the upcoming games, can we include it? So with that sort of importance placed on say what comes from the games, but also doing your own thing. Uh, we, we sort of saw in the, well, we sort of saw, we saw in the latest movie, uh, the rivalry between the Lin Kuei and the Shirai Ryu, uh, Scorpion's clan. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to assume that the Shirai Ryu would have, uh, popped up in some manner as well? That was in there. Yeah, that was in there. I mean, I think that's a historical fact from the MK universe mm-hmm. that they executed pretty 
great in this film. Um, that was in there. And on top of the clans, the Mortal Kombat universe obviously has its own fair share of different species between the realms. Uh, would you have had some sort of focus on the human characters or would we have seen? Also- yeah, there were some fantasy, there were some fantasy elements. There were some fantasy elements that needed to be done right. Uh, I can say Goro was not in this script, um, but there were some other elements from some of the other games that kind of, they made visual, more visual references. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the you guys picked up on the crusade part of it, you know, the journey part of it. So in that sense, there were opportunities for fantasy moments that would have happened within the more Mortal Kombat universe. You know, an example would be the fire dragon that showed up at the end of this film. Cool. You know, and that's the way I was approaching it. You know, it was like, uh, this is a fantasy picture. You know, mm-hmm. I should be able to put a, uh, put the film on in front of someone who's never seen Mortal Kombat in their life. And they go, Oh, that was cool. And that's, that was my approach every day because a, I had a huge responsibility of getting it right. And I understood that, but I was surrounded by the best technicians and Ed and Josh who really cared. So I don't yeah. think they were going to make a misstep between the two of them. But I also, if they were, they were honoring me with the opportunity to do this, I had to make a movie that if someone had never seen Mortal Kombat, they were like, wow, that was great. And they understood it from the first frame to the last frame. So eventually Warner brothers acquired midway, did that kind of, you know, put the final touches on what was <laughs> happening to this movie as far as it not getting released? Or did that script kind of go on to morph into possibly what we ended up seeing with Warner Brothers? I'm, I'm not sure what happened. I was out of it by that point. I think Warner okay. Brothers bought Midway in 2009, yeah. I think. I don't mm-hmm. think. So I was kind of at that point I was doing other stuff. At the time when we were making this film, and again, more boring business facts for Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Turn off the podcast now. Fast forward to this point. Um, the f- Midway was owned by Paramount, mm-hmm. Sumner Redstone. So he mm-hmm. owned the majority share of Midway. Uh, how he got ownership, again, I don't know. But so a ri- so the film, the first two films have been released by New Line Entertainment, which is a subdivision of Warner Brothers, which maybe people know or not. Hopefully I'm not mansplaining all this, but stop me if I'm That's great. This is good. So New Line is a subdivision of Warner Brothers. They released the first two films. I do believe they were involved in Conquest too, in some capacity. I think maybe Mm -hmm. the shows aired on Warner Brothers TV before they went into syndication. I know they were on TNT, which also is another Warner Brothers television network. Hmm. Paramount owned Midway. So Paramount was developing when we were working. They were developing Area 51, Spy Hunter. I think they had a Joust movie. Uh, they might have had a Defender movie. Um, it was like, figure that one out. Um, <laughs> a bunch of buttons. We have to push them. Uh, <laughs> so obviously we're making an $80 million movie with a wonderful universe that another studio owns and is being done independently. That's going to create a business dynamic. What the exact repercussions of that dynamic were, I wasn't exposed to, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not naive enough not to understand that that does play a role in how we were doing things. Could mm-hmm. the deal have been made so we all get along? Absolutely. This is Hollywood. You can always make it. You may have to give a little more, take a little more, whatever, but you can make a deal. So, but we were, I was aware that, hey, Paramount's like seeing you're making this really cool movie and they're not involved in it. Um, I think that was going on. But as far as your question is concerned, I just told you something else. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, I would have loved to have seen a, a Jet Li Shang Tsung 
Oh, and, so um, would I. Fire, How good would that have been? So, <laughs> and, a, and a fire dragon fatality. Like, I mean, we, yeah. we kind of got that in the new movie, but. Yeah, I yeah. Johnny Knoxville as Johnny Cage too. We had a no meme way. About that. I was, <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, because <laughs> he had the sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we had Ar- Arnold Arnold Vosloo from uh, Mummy movies. I thought he would have been cool as like, oh, like yeah. an overlord or an emperor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gosh, so many opportunities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at this point, I mean, after you know, you kind of wrapped up your business with the movie. Are you still involved or, or did you get involved no, with more fun no. at all? It's like, you know, the dream faded. <laughs> Just, no, <laughs> no, like, no. If like, if somebody at Warner brothers opens up a banker's box and is like, what is mink guy did a lot of cool stuff. Maybe <laughs> most likely the way it works, they'll hand it to Zack Snyder and he'll use it. Um, but yeah. you know, it's, it's okay. It's okay. My, my, my career path of Mortal Kombat. I have very fond memories of the time. But just to confirm, would you be interested in doing something in the future if they did reach out? Oh, 100%. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding <laughs> me? I'd, I'd die to step back into that universe. So it sounds like we could use you. It's in such good hands. I think it's in good hands. I think, I think, you, I, I think it's a bit like today when they're talking about letting every, all the Lakers go except for one. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, just stop. Take a time out. <laughs> Simon did a great job. His team did a great job. Let them finish their thoughts and, and figure out where they want to get to do. The beauty of today's world, though, which I'm excited about, is so much media needs to be created for this kind of story. So there are a lot of other opportunities in other areas for Mortal Kombat to exist in today's world. And I think that's great. So TV series, miniseries. Yeah. Know, podcasts, all this really <laughs> cool stuff. It all can exist today because of the fact that we're consuming media on so many different levels and the playing field's more level and the technology's better and the abilities and the opportunities. It's great. So you were a, a fan of the new movie? Yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah. It's not I, what I, I mean, was doing. That's, that's what I was curious. You know? So it's like, not like I'm, I'm not sitting there with my arms folded like, this is terrible. <laughs> Let me do it. This guy's an idiot. No. The new games... Like Mortal Kombat 11 is so far beyond anything I was exposed to. Mm-hmm. And I play yeah. that game and I'm like, oh, I'm going back to Call of Duty, you know? So <laughs> that part of me, though, as the fan, is like, I want to see this. I want to I see this. And I thought the effects were great. I thought their choice of characters was cool. I thought the story was good. The fights were good. I mean, it was great. But it wasn't what we were doing. We were making mm-hmm. Terminator 2. You can't, you couldn't sit in a room and say this Mortal Kombat was Terminator 2. No, it was, it's, it was Simon's vision in conjunction with his team, very talented people, of what Mortal Kombat 11 means to the audience today. Hmm. Cause we didn't have any of that stuff then. We didn't have 3D imagery of bones being broken and like right. all these, fat- I mean, the, all, the fatalities were like, well, do we pull the spine out? Oh, that seems a little racy. You know, like we, it was a different, world you know if you tried to make pirates of the caribbean now which they're doing right mm-hmm. they, those that film now has to live up to the marvel universe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're seeing they can't keep pirates of the caribbean where it was in 2004 which is to me still to this day so cool yeah they gotta they gotta bring it up to you know it's gonna have to be avengers good do, do you think we'll ever see anything at that scale again with mortal kombat kind oh, of? i think so really i think so. that's the- i think so and i hope so i think so i hope so too <laughs> i think so. i think so. the, 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 the universe is the universe is ripe for it, and I hope so. You know, yeah. Put it this way: if uh, if John Favreau picked up the phone tomorrow and called Warner Brothers and said, "I'd like to talk to you about Mortal Kombat," mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys would be like, "This is four hundred million dollar Mortal Kombat movie." They're making. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the timing. 
You, so you enjoyed the latest movie. Have you kept up to date in other ways? Have you seen, for example, Legacy or Scorpion's Revenge? Yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've, I've watched the stuff. It's cool. That's cool. And you've mentioned too that you've played the other games. So you, you still like Mortal Kombat? It sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I still love Mortal Kombat. It's great. It's part of my. It's part of my history. I, you know, I've, I've. Uh, it's in my. It was a couple of years of my life, and it was a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. we were close, you know, we were close. We were like, man, we're going to get this. You know, there was like days on that movie. I was like, this is going to happen. You know, I'm going to be in Prague and I'm going to have to do this. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and then for whatever reason, it was, oh, you know, so it's all right. So do you have any other projects that you're currently working on that you could tell us about that our Without fans can look into? Yeah, saying no. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I do have some stuff I'm working on that the lawyers definitely tell them not going to let me talk about. You know, I'm just, I'm working on some stuff that will be out soon. Uh, I've got a... We're doing a documentary on uh, Film Threat magazine. I don't think anybody will probably know what that is, but it was kind of a very influential independent film magazine in the 90s that set Kevin Smith and Tarantino and Richard Linkletter and Steven Soderbergh in motion. And so we're oh, doing a documentary about that from one of the streamers. Cool. Um, but but some, some cool stuff going on. Like I get, guys, I get up every day and I love, I love what I do. And I've yeah. been so blessed in everything I'm doing. And, the, and even, even to the point that you guys want to talk about a movie that never happened, which I think is great. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's all good, man. We'll, we'll get it done. And, and who knows, you know, you, you never, you never say never in this town, you know, the mortal, mortal combat, mortal combat may live again in some, in some way, shape or form. So. Fingers crossed. Cause you, the vision that you explained to me was, it basically sounded like exactly what I've always wanted from, an MK movie. Yeah. Well, it's cool to know that, you know, it's cool to know that the, the interest is there. And over the years, you know, cause I, I go to some of the trade shows and stuff and I've run into fans who've said, Hey, aren't you man? Weren't you the dude involved in Mortal Kombat? And I lovingly look back on the message boards, which have long been erased. Thank God <laughs> of, of 2007, where I did interact with, the fan base of Mortal Kombat, which was kind of my first foray. I, I had dealt with Steven Seagal's fan base, which is a whole mm-hmm. nother kettle of fish. And they're great too, but they're different. The different type of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got involved in Mortal Kombat, quickly the the message boards would fill up about, well, who is this clown? What's he going to do to our movie? And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I would start talking to them. And then the conversations got genuine and they were real and, and the, and the ideas were thoughtful and imaginative and, and the contributions that they were trying to make of like, make my movie, make my, please do this for us. (laughs) I lovingly look back at that time period. And to this day, I'll run into some of those individuals. Some of them I'm still sort of, you know, acquaintances with, I'll see them at a trade show and they'll be like, Hey, it's made for Mortal Kombat, you know? So the appreciation that I have for the community, the ideas, what we were doing at the time, Larry giving me the opportunity, which he didn't have to do, but he did. Um, I look back at it really fondly. With, you know, we've, we've kind of discussed to a lot of the projects that inspired you and kind of have driven you and things that you've taken stuff from. Are there any dream projects that you'd like to work on? I'd like to work on The Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I, I know the guys that built the... Uh, built the system that they, they created. Oh, yeah. And, you know, cause I, I came, a lot of my peers that we came up with, you know, I was fortunate early on to be around people like Ken Ralston and, and people that kind of created the, the roadmap for where we're going today. I'd like to be involved in that. Some, I just like to see it, you know? 
what you mean the what uh, that projection that, that, pro, that virtual production is the future mm, of yeah. our industry and i'm i've got my feet wet in it and then doing some we've we're developed, we have a television show that we've developed that uses the process, but it's not the Mandalorian. I, in th- what John did with that show just brings so much joy to the world, never mind me. And um, to be involved in that capacity. And I'm so impressed of the way Disney does things. I, their understanding of storytelling and their appreciation of letting people do it and the level they do it at just blows me away every day. You know, we've kind of discussed your career as a whole, how you you know, started off just doing production assistant work and telling people not to eat salads <laughs> all the way to the stuff that you're doing I'm now. Good, I was a good salad. They were like, I can't eat this. Nope. Get out. Nope. <laughs> Can I just get some dressing? Uh-uh. Do you uh-uh. have any uh, advice for anybody who's breaking into the business who's listening to our podcast today? Run away. <laughs> Run. Go learn how to be a programmer. You'll get $36 an hour. Um, yes, keep going. Keep trying. You got all the, you got all the chances out there. Just keep going and trying. I think what's a beautiful thing is the internet has a, the internet is an equalizer Mm -hmm. for creative people. If you want to do it, you can get the information now, you know? And I think that that's a beautiful thing. And I encourage people, if you're interested in a subject, research it, read books, go to meetings, join chat groups, try to go to mixers, meetups, whatever. You know, I do get asked this question. Well, how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you write a comic book? How do you whatever? Do the research. Do the research. It's all out there now because of the internet. And that's so beautiful. There's somewhere out there, there's a page of information related to something you're interested in that will change your life. Go find it now. Take the time, you know, maybe turn your phone off while you're doing it so that you can focus on what it is and then take that information, make it yours and then move forward with the steps that needed to be done, you know? Just keep trying, you know, get up every day, keep trying. And if, and if you don't like it, stop doing it. I think, I think too many people do things because they think it's a good idea. It's like, if you're not really into it, pick something else. You know, I was told that early on in my career that just because you want to do X doesn't mean you're going to end up there. So go in the direction you think you'd like to go. And if the wind blows you another way, that's okay. Be open to it. It might blow you back to where you need to go. That's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. Do what you're passionate about and go with the flow as you enjoy, mm-hmm. as you like. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, uh, and try, I think the try part, you know, you guys are doing it. Try if you, if you like, if you want to do a podcast, just get a mic and do it. You want to be mm-hmm. a stand up comic, go to open mic and do it. You want to try to write a script, download a template of a script you like, read it and do it. You know, people go, well, you know, I can't write a script. Well, most people can, if they, if they apply themselves, they can probably write three to four pages a day on a script, even if it's not very good. If you write three pages a day for 20 days, you'll finish it. And you'll improve along the way. 20 days is not that long. Most people, most people go to the gym for 20 days. So they go on a fast for 20 days or they, you know, or they're doing their battle pass for 20 days. Like, and when the script is done, then you have something to talk about. Okay. I've got the script, you know, what should I do with it? Well, before we let you go, uh, what is your favorite uh-huh. finisher in the Mortal Kombat universe? <laughs> Probably Sub-Zero's finishing move, you know? Just the, the whole ice thing. I mean, the idea of freezing somebody and shattering them, that doesn't get cooler than that. I love that in Mortal Kombat <laughs> 2 because it was like a two-step fatality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just cool. It's like, I'm going to freeze you and then you're going to be a frozen meat pie <laughs> and then I'm going to shatter. Like, yeah. like okay. <laughs> and uh, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram, Director Mink. That's a good thing. Um, I'm there. You, you want, follow me, send me messages or whatever. I'm happy to answer whatever questions I can. Um, and, uh, I'm happy to talk about whatever anybody wants to talk about or connect you or do those kind of things. 
you know. We'll be leaving a link to your page in the description of this video. Cool. Yeah, we would like to thank all of our listeners for stopping by the Realmcast today. And Mink, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It was really great to talk to you. My pleasure, guys. Yeah, I I loved hearing about this process of what happened to this movie because there's, as we said, there's been so much misinformation out there Mm -hmm. and nobody really knows anymore what, what, what's going on with it and, you know, or what went on with it. It's just disappeared. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, uh, the, the development of films takes years, Mm -hmm. any film, you know, even, even films that don't get made, they take years. And this particular film was going to be a very was going to be the up up until the most recent film, which is a big movie by the Mortal Kombat universe standards. And they did a m- great job. But at the time, this window of time, we're talking mid 2000 to beyond me. And I don't know how much farther went after my involvement. We were making a really big movie that was appropriate for the time. But when times change, the need for that film and that context may have changed too. So I think that's what happened too. So I, I, it's important for your listeners to know that it didn't not happen for lack of effort. Mm-hmm. It just was the one that got away, you know, it, it was like just it. that one home run that didn't happen that, that kept the championship from we going. You can tell that was the passion behind it. You know, we were one swing away from this happening. We really, we were there and it just didn't, so it just close. didn't, it just didn't come to fruition, but that's not to anybody's fault. Well, hopefully we can see some of that in an upcoming movie. As you said, maybe some of the, Parts aspects of that script might get picked up or later in Solomon's more combat. I hope, so. I, hope, I, yeah. hope I hope and I hope Simon and his team go back and look at everything that Larry did. It's really good. It's really good. And there's a lot of great material. Hopefully. We'll see what we get. You can find Mink at his Instagram at Director Mink. And you can find Yanni and myself, Phantom, on the Mortal Kombat group on Facebook, as well as Yanni on the Mortal Kombat meme realm. Special thanks again to Uppercut Editions, who are creating the Mortal Kombat Compendium for the continued support. You can follow them at Encyclopedia MK on Twitter and the Mortal Kombat Encyclopedia Project on Facebook. You can catch up on all episodes of the Realmcast on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you. Weak, pathetic fools, I've come for your souls. I don't think so.